0: Exactly what's happening to all of us, asked Keiko. I don't know exactly where to start, said Pastor James, rubbing his chin. For the past hour or so, he had been praying for clarity and the reason for similar visions between him and Bart. Not everything was completely clear, but what he was beginning to consider was generating fear in his heart. He looked at Keiko again. She was so ready to understand what was going on. She wanted some kind of anchor to help her bridge the gap between science and religion, fact and faith, the physical and spiritual. He prayed he could make her understand. You remember what Bart said about his vision and how he interpreted it with the horrible outcome of his followers committing mass suicide? Well, I had the same exact vision the other day. Keiko tensed and caught herself from pulling back from the pastor. She knew the results of the first nut and wondered if the pastor's prolonged exposure to him was contagious. Seeing her slight reaction, Pastor James smiled don't worry, Bart and I are cut from two different cloths. He then went into detail explaining his vision, how he explained it to Bart, who wasn't completely forthcoming in what he saw to anyone, and how Bart was shocked to see another person with the same exact vision, but with a different outcome. One was dark, while the other focused on precaution and the hope of prevention. He must have mentioned this to you before, you just don't remember, said Keiko. Pastor James shook his head no, I'm sorry, but he didn't. Barr took it upon himself as being the only enlightened person to receive this message. He feared most wouldn't understand and carried the burden himself. This can't be explained through science. This is a spiritual matter. Keiko closed her eyes and breathed deeply. So, what you're insinuating is your friend, for the first time, experienced doubt in what he did. That he got it wrong somehow and persuaded many to prematurely end their lives. And he finally felt the weight of his actions, and this caused his seizure. Pastor James shrugged, I don't know, he did seem rather upset. Fine, that I can understand. Now tell me how all of this affects us all. You said that earlier. Pastor James knew he was dancing around answering this question. How could he convince someone of something he, too, was having doubts about? It goes back to what you believe in. Are you really asking this question with an open mind? Or are you still inflexible in your beliefs? Keiko shrugged. Pastor, just tell me. I'll deal with all that later when you're done. Well, the truth is, I'm not entirely sure. There are many things happening all around us we just don't fully understand. We may get a partial understanding, a glimpse, or even a partial truth. Or, all of a sudden, the answer may just come upon us. Here's what I know. Two men had the same exact vision, however, The meaning and understanding for each were totally different. Where do these visions come from? If you're Bart, then it was the connection he made through his symbiotic relationship. I mentioned to you some time ago. If it's me, then it's from God Himself. Now the question is if it came from God, did He send me the same vision? And somehow the interpretation got mixed up. But then why would God send Bart this vision if He wasn't really following Him? Keiko realized the pastor was really torn and that this was what he was fervently praying about. The pastor shook his head, but this I do know. When something so traumatic is about to happen, there has been evidence of many people having dreams and visions, glimpses of the future of this particular event. I've heard of many people having dreams and visions of the catastrophes of 9-11. Some saw the burning of buildings, others heard the voices of thousands screaming, and others of airplanes flying into buildings. Now these people all came from different backgrounds, Some were from totally different religions, some not religious at all, and others from the other side of the globe. It was as if a horrible event reached back in time, and those sensitive to hear and see received the message. Can this be explained? There are many theories and thoughts on this matter, but nothing concrete, only supposition. But one can't deny the fact that people all over experienced something they later realize was the horrific catastrophe of 9-11. Keiko felt a chill as she considered what was being suggested and presented to her. She vaguely remembered this being mentioned quietly around the office right after the event but dismissed it as idle chatter. Never once did she take it seriously or had it presented to her in such a compelling way. But this I do believe, the pastor continued, a vision is of things to come. But you may say if there's no way of stopping something from coming, then why the vision? I believe a vision is to prepare us for what is to come and can also be a warning. A warning when heated can help us either cope with an upcoming situation or maybe help us prevent an event from occurring come on you really think the end of the world is coming as you and the prophet saw she interrupted i mean well no one can know the future pastor james smiled and now you know what i struggle with and pray about if this indeed is something horrible to come then it doesn't just affect me and bart but everyone agent carter everyone and everything is at risk do we believe it? Do we dismiss it? Do we file it away as something unexplainable? Or, do we investigate it? And if the crumbs lead to something substantial, do we do something about it? Keiko remained silent. This was more than she expected. She could easily dismiss all of this by just saying Pastor James must have forgotten Bart mentioning his vision in detail to him, and the difference in their interpretations was a reflection of their different beliefs. It was the perfect logical explanation making the most sense. But this time, her gut instinct ruled. I, I believe you. She mumbled slowly. With eyes staring directly ahead at the altar, she realized she was about to plunge into uncharted territory, with the next words coming out of her mouth. So, what do we do now? For the first time since the conversation started, Pastor James exhibited a perplexed expression on his face. I've no idea. I'm just a pastor of a church. You're the FBI agent. I was hoping you'd know. As Brooke watched the last of the Fletcher's belongings being loaded onto the Federal Express cargo jet, she texted Keiko to expect the items in a few hours. As far as everyone knew, all of the items were going back to the D.C. office. However, on pure instinct, she felt motivated to send them to Keiko in North Dakota. Despite any future repercussions in my cause, she knew she had to get the items out of South Carolina and away from Martin's hands. What now? Asked Joseph. After Brooke opened the car door and sat down next to him, the famous Brooke's smile flashed before him, again, nearly melting his heart. First, let's get something to eat. I'm starving. After that, let's start questioning the neighbors. Joseph closed his eyes as if regretting what he had to say. I was told to keep an eye on you, but not to help. After we eat, you're on your own. Um, I'll be tailing you secretly, of course, of course just like a guardian angel overseeing his charge. No, nothing like that. If you get into trouble, I can't help you, he said. Well, what kind of trouble can I get into in that neighborhood? It's like way upscale, you know, she said, with an intentional valley girl accent. The same kind of trouble the Fletchers got into, Joseph said seriously. Good point. I'll keep my eyes open. Brooke slapped his arm hard. Can we go? I'm still hungry, you know. Later that day, Brooke left the last house on the list of neighbors close to the Fletcher's home, sat down in her rented car, and carefully went over the interviews she conducted that night. Every person seemed to confirm what Joseph had told her before. A dirty, maybe white, van was seen outside the home, was later pulled into the garage overnight, and then seen to leave just minutes before the explosion. Coincidence? She didn't think so. There had to be a connection between the van, the Fletcher's, and the missing maid. However, nothing she heard tonight shed any light on the investigation. It just confirmed that the local law enforcement was suppressing the fact that the explosion might not have been accidental. They probably came to the same dead end about the van and just wanted closure, not desiring public knowledge of a murderous element running about. She put that little fact in her report and let someone else worry about it. Her main concern was to make her investigation as thorough as possible. Her last visit tonight was to the missing maid's elderly sister. Joseph had earlier informed Brooke that the sister ceaselessly called the police department, obviously anxious over her sister's unresolved absence. Living in a less desirable area of the island, the sister expressed concern about Brooke's visit. But she was persuaded when Brooke plainly said that the sooner her questions were answered, the faster the woman could find out more about her sister. Joseph watched Brooke start up her car, and followed her when she pulled into the street. After a while, he realized where she was going and shook his head slowly. There were some places tourists didn't need to go, and this was one of them. Noticing she was taking the long way and would most likely get lost for a while, Joseph decided to drive straight to the house and wait for Brooke there. Damn! Brooke mumbled as she took another turn, she was lost. She desperately looked for Joseph's headlights and wondered if she had lost him, hoping that he would eventually catch up to her. Brooke pulled over and waited several minutes for Joseph before giving up. She mentally slapped herself for not getting a car with a GPS as she continued driving straight ahead, looking for anyone to get directions. Finally, she came across a gas station and eagerly pulled up to a gas pump. Hello, is anyone here? She called from her car, paused, and then beat her horn. A crusty old man came from around the building and parked himself next to the front passenger window. His eyes widened as he saw a completely lost tourist and a quick way to make a buck. Yeah, he said, not offering any type of help. Brooke's smile quickly left her face as she realized the man had dollar signs in his eyes. She didn't feel like playing games and pulled out a $20 bill. I got turned around and need to know how to get back to this address. She handed him the 20 and the address. The old man quickly pocketed the money and looked at the address. When he recognized the location, he wasn't quick enough to cover his shock. Why would you want to go there? That's where I want to go? Brooke answered. The man paused a long time before responding. There are safer places to buy your drugs. Brooke breathed deeply and then gave the man another 20, not willing to reveal that she was an FBI agent. I really need to get there. The old man threw up his hands. Well, if you need to go, you need to go. He rambled off names of streets, right turns, left turns, and a variety of directions. He then mentioned for her to have a good day, turned, and walked away. Brooke was soon off again with fresh new directions to guide her, and after 20 minutes, she pulled up to her destination. The area was depressing, with houses in need of immediate repair and streets with scattered potholes. It was totally dark, except for the stray hints of light coming from behind curtain windows. She recognized the address on one of the doors and prepared herself for the last interview of the day. Martin looked at his cell phone after the call was abruptly terminated. Over the last several days, it seemed as though nothing he did ever turned out right. When he allowed Brooke to go to the side of the Fletcher's debts, the only things he envisioned were closure of the Fletcher problem and the completion of keeping one of his agents off the Iron Mountain case. Never did he expect the people hired by Sheol to leave so many holes, allowing Brooke to pick apart and possibly extend a case originally thought closed by the local police. Voice 3 was livid while talking with Martin. He questioned his intelligence in allowing Brooke to go to Hilton Head, even though she was fully within her right to do so, and denying her permission would have caused more suspicion. Martin was informed that Brooke was dangerously getting close to reopening the case due to the slipshod investigative aptitude of the local police. He argued that even if the case was reopened, it couldn't lead back to them. It would only fall back onto the mysterious dirty white van parked at the Fletcher residence. After a few more minutes of venomous lecturing of his inadequate management of a rather simple matter, Voice 3 stated they would take care of Agent Brooke C. Cole Lee personally. Martin knew the death of an FBI agent would call for a more aggressive investigation and that such an investigation would most likely not be his responsibility. The Sheol must be really desperate for a cover-up to consider this action, he thought. He breathed deeply to calm himself. Never did he think it would come to this when he accepted She y'all's invitation. Little by little, Martin despairingly wondered how soon he would outlive his usefulness. Burke's interview with the maid's sister was uneventful. The poor woman was distraught over her sister's absence and feared her remains were somehow mixed up with the debris from the Fletcher house. Brooke obtained no new leads on the maid since the sister hadn't seen her for days before the incident. Brooke feared the maid might have met a horrible end, but she never voiced her concerns. Instead, she stated that either the FBI or the local police would contact her immediately as soon as they knew more. Leaving the house, she checked her watch. One hour had passed since she first started talking to the maid's sister. It was late, she was tired, and she wanted nothing more than just to relax in bed. Brooke glanced for Joseph's car, and saw it parked one block down the street. She failed to notice he was battling his eyelids to stay awake. When she turned to walk to her car, she just made out a figure darting around the corner. It could have been anything, but she decided to keep alert as she approached her car. Once in the car, She relaxed and proceeded to the bed and breakfast house to relax before calling it a night. While driving, she continued to check a rearview mirror for Joseph's familiar headlights. He didn't disappoint, keeping a constant five-car distance between them. The traffic was starting to pick up as she started to enter the more popular areas of the island, when Brooke noticed a red light appear on her dashboard. It was the brake lights. She tested the brakes and felt no response in the car. The car wasn't slowing and she happened to be on a slow decline. She immediately tried to pull the emergency brake, and it too, had no effect on the car. Losing power, the car quickly pulled to the left, directly toward oncoming traffic in a truck. Brooke immediately knew she couldn't jump out the door, or she'd be lying right in front of oncoming traffic. Nor did she have enough time to make it to the passenger side. She braced for the crash, the sickening impact, the deploying of the airbag and the brief sensation of pain happened all too quickly before she blacked out. Keiko looked at the text from Brooke. It said to take a look at Fletcher's items and then ship them to DC. She also texted she didn't have a chance to look at them and would value her input. Figuring the reason why Brooke went around Martin would reveal itself in time, Keiko refocused on her present situation. She and Pastor James went their separate ways, with neither knowing what action to take. Pastor James was obviously taking time to pray and seek God's guidance, while Keiko was left alone with her thoughts, confused thoughts. It was already late in the evening as Keiko's confusion faded to an unsettling slumber in her bed. The dream seemed so real that it blurred reality. Keiko sighed, realizing she had to call her mother. She looked out the hotel window and stared at the sky. It was completely dark outside too dark for a cloudless night in distance she saw a tall office building standing out from everything else as if it were the sole focal point of the night the white lights shining from its windows seemed strangely luminescent in the darkness drawing her in when her mother answered the phone keiko immediately tensed carter residence hiroko speaking hi mom keiko thank goodness you called It is always good to hear from my little girl my adored plum blossom child yeah keiko hated how her mother always tended to remind her of the meaning of her middle name yumeko as if it had some significance on who she was is everything all right she asked already knowing the answer oh everything's fine here how are you doing i was just thinking about you when you called as hiroko continued talking keiko stared in amazement as all the lights in the office building slowly became an iridescent sickly yellow well you see it's like this her mother continued your brother maceo called me and told me about your conversation with him i was just curious to see how you were doing so i called your office but you weren't there i happened to talk to your supervisor agent martin is he married he seems like a nice young man anyway he gave me your phone number at the hotel so why did you really call your brother are you in trouble you know I always worry about your safety at that god-forsaken bureau. How's dad? Keiko asked, trying to avoid the barrage of questions. Adam's fine. Keiko, you're now in some kind of dangerous investigation, are you? Because if you are, I want you to be especially careful. Keiko stroked her hair, trying to calm herself. It didn't matter how old she was, she'd always be Hiroko's little girl. A little girl who inexplicably threw her life away to pursue a career with the FBI. A little girl who couldn't find stability in her life by finding a good man and settling down. A little girl who just wouldn't listen to her mother. Agonizing minutes passed by as Keiko listened to her mother ramble on about her moving back to the West Coast to find a suitable husband and how she had several promising prospects to choose from. If she needed any help, of course? When the conversation deteriorated to Hiroko complaining about Keiko's poor choice of a profession, Keiko found it difficult to hold her tongue. Seriously, Mom, we've been through this so many times, and it hasn't changed a thing. I'm perfectly happy with the choices I've made in my life, and I just wish you'd be happy for me. I'm living the life I want to live, and as for finding Mr. Wright, well, let's just say that when he comes, he comes, I'm not going to bend over backwards looking for him. The windows in the building became a dull blood red. Several even broke as many indistinguishable figures were ejected and plummeted to their deaths. Through her window, Keiko could faintly hear the muffled sounds of screams and shouts. Dropping her phone, she grabbed her chest as the building started to emit an ethereal mist. The mist rose quickly, twisting and intertwining within itself, before it reached a tremendous height and then split in numerous directions. The night, once pitch dark, was now aglow with the numerous ethereal strands shooting out in all directions from the building. Keiko! Her mother screamed from the phone. Keiko shook her head slowly and looked at the phone on the floor. For a split second, she didn't know where she was. Everything she saw seemed so familiar and yet so terrifying. She picked up the phone slowly. Mom. Dear God, Keiko, your father, he's, he's dying. There's things all over his body. I don't know what to do. Oh, Adam, hang on. Why is this happening to us? Mommy, what's, what's happening? I just saw. No, no, Adam, no. Come back to me, Adam. Dear God, it's happening everywhere. Everyone. My arm's eye. Got it too. Monty, Keiko screamed. What's happening? What's going on? Why Keiko? Why couldn't you stop this? You had a chance to stop all this and now everyone's dead because of you. Couldn't you see with your education and current position, you're the right person in time to stop this, but you didn't and because of that everyone's dead. When the phone connection abruptly died, Keiko looked at the phone and dropped it once again to the floor. When she looked out the window, there was death scattered everywhere. It was a horrifying scene. Then, from the death and decay, three men rose from among the bodies and stared directly at her, smiling. It's not my fault, she mumbled, as tears started to freely fall. She focused on the three men. It's not my fault, she screamed. The last thing she heard was maniacal laughs from the three keiko opened her eyes jumped from her bed and ran toward the window it was dawn the birds were singing and she could see the lights on in some houses as people prepared themselves for another day of work but no large office building was in sight it was all just a dream or was it it's not my fault she mumbled still crying